a Women Charge podcast acknowledges the traditional custodians of the land on which we record, the Wilguru Kaba and Bindal peoples, whose sovereignty was never ceded, and we pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. The mindful doctor, Gabrielle Staniforth. Gabby, Gab, a woman a wife, a mother and a pillar of her community in Orange, New South Wales. She started her career as an assistant in nursing before becoming a registered nurse, both from the University of Sydney. As she worked, she completed her science degree in immunology and then worked as a paediatric nurse, all before moving to Western Australia to complete her degree in medicine and then moving back to New South Wales to train and work in general practice. And as if all these feats weren't enough, Gabby, the Trojan that she is, navigated her own personal tragedies, her husband receiving cancer treatment twice, and then receiving, as a couple, 20 IVF cycles in order to be able to conceive their two children over the space of nine years. Absolutely incredible. Gabby loves reading, she runs half marathons and has started painting to become more mindful and indeed Gabby began the Mindful Doctor page which has become hugely popular on Instagram and Facebook where she offers factual and evidence-based advice to women from a place of empathy, from a place of personal experience and from a place of real drive and passion. On her website she says and I quote My favourite part of being a doctor and a GP is being able to provide care across a lifetime. And that, in a nutshell, is exactly what she does for women, from childhood, adolescence, to women through fertility, pregnancy, and their journeys through menopause and beyond. Gabby, thank you very much for joining me on a Women Charge podcast. How are you today? You're very welcome. And I'm very well. Thanks, Anna. How are you? Yes, I'm good. Now, we had a few technical difficulties. So thanks very much for putting up with me. Um, And, you know, thanks for joining me because I know that later on today, you're going to be doing some more vaccinations at the vaccination hub where you work. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. It's never ending at the moment, (laughs) Anna. I, I do my usual clinical days looking after my patients, but I have dropped some of those hours in order to step up and work in the vaccination clinic, do my bit in this pandemic. And I've been particularly proud to be able to contribute to that thing. Yeah. But, you know, you did say as anyone in their careers, you know, it's amazing to be a part of it, but it does probably become a little bit monotonous and it's not what you planned for your daily career. Oh, definitely. It's, it's actually offers a nice change in pace to usual clinical practice. But because it is the same thing over and over and over again, the same conversations, mm. the same questions, it does become monotonous. But yeah. nevertheless, I, I see the importance of it. Okay, well, hopefully this can provide a little welcome break. Um, so <laughs> I mentioned there, you said on your website, providing care across a lifetime. So your patient list, you said, is majority women, um, mm. but of all ages. So what differences mm. do you see across the age spectrum um, right now? You know, are we all, as women at heart, worrying about the same issues? Are we wishing to touch, especially on exploring sexuality and speaking about sexuality with you as your GP? Mm. Interesting question. And I think as women, we do generally tend to worry about the same things across our lifetime. But I guess the presentations come to me in different ways. And I and it's also the way in which I'm able to open up those conversations that 
Mm. reveal those specific concerns. One thing that is different actually is in the adolescent group and the young adult group, which are presenting with, I guess, the same sorts of problems that anyone across the age group present with, yeah. but they've got the added complexities of social media mm. um, and social pressures that I know in my generation wasn't there. I turned 40 this year and I consider myself lucky enough to have gone through school and to have gone through university without any social media yeah. at all and those social pressures. And I think that's that's something that really worries me and concerns me about that age group. Yeah. Um, you know, they, they're presenting more and more with mental health issues younger and younger mm. and yes we've had this added stress of a pandemic homeschooling and so forth but the only other difference in the increase in mental health issues in this age group is the social media yeah. the time spent on screens and it's just not okay and it's deeply concerning um, how many how many adolescents i've had to hospitalize for their mental health issues, how many adolescents are on medication? It's yeah, yeah. I mean, it's its own, is, pan it's own pandemic. Whole, yeah. yeah, well, absolutely. And right now, it's really hard to pinpoint those things. You know, if you had, say, a physical um, symptom rather than a mental health issue, you could perhaps pinpoint it to something you're doing, like say something as simple as the way you're sitting at your desk. That's why you're getting neck pain. But now we just don't know. It's all the complete unknown of what these effects are. And they're so, I guess, bit by bit, they'll add up and amount to something. But then as doctors, you know, you could never say, well, this is definitely because you've been using TikTok. You know, <laughs> you can't just pinpoint it. And it's not as simple as that, which is a real difficult thing. Um, yeah. I think I probably had similar experience when I was a police officer and I was trying to deal with um, like revenge porn and things like that that's going around on social media and trying mm -hmm. to pinpoint who did what and when it just was absolutely impossible especially when you're looking at these platforms who are they're internationally owned and so you can't mm -hmm. even get the data from these things and yeah kids were just tearing their hair out and nowadays with the pandemic they're all trying to connect like that's all we want to do as humans and I think as adolescents you do that even more and they can't so they're going yeah. to these platforms to do it and and that is the advantage of the platforms and none of us can deny that you know from a workspace point of view it's, it's so advantageous I mean you and I are talking mm. between Townsville and yeah. Orange Queensland and New South Wales yeah. and like you said that lack of connectivity has is something that's been truly highlighted in the pandemic and it's so important in terms of our mental health but there is obviously that big underlying negative aspect of it that we really need to consider yeah i guess your, your original question was mm. are, there, are people presenting with the same thing across the lifetime are women presenting with the same things and I guess the biggest concerns as women is, and always has been, um, how we present ourselves to the outside world, how we are, mm. how we are received, mm -hmm. you know, I guess that's just exacerbated more by the use of social media in that age group. Yeah, like, especially with regard to body image, body confidence, and sort of right. putting, out, yeah, yeah. putting yourself out and you're all at that age, you're just trying to develop your sense of self. I think, yeah. I think we all are throughout our lives, yeah. but at that stage, you really are forming it, you know, and that's when you're supposed to do it as well. Exactly. And it's, it's actually really important from a physiological um, and biological point of view for humans to be part of the norm. It's actually mm. against our brain to stand out from the group because that puts us 
in an exposed situation yeah. and that could be dangerous. You know, yeah. if you think about when we were cavemen and, and so mm. forth, you didn't want to stand out. And it's essentially the same in, in this day and age. So yeah. to be accepted and to be the same is really important, but it's not just adolescents, even in our age group mm. and older mm-hmm. now that you know we're connecting with the rest of the world what is normal and what is being presented as normal isn't actually normal. Um, So people are actually trying to be something that's not normal, whether it be how they look, how they act, how many, I don't do TikTok, but how many TikTok reels they do and how many followers they have and how many likes they have. And, you know, it all comes back to that basic structure of, you know, it's important to be accepted. It's important to be liked because then you're going to survive longer. Yeah, that's so interesting. It's almost like an Mm -hmm. anthropological Thing. that's the word I was looking for Good yeah <laughs> yeah like needing to be accepted I suppose that's what everyone mm-hmm. really wants to do at heart and um, even if they are going against the grain and trying to be themselves I suppose at heart they do want to be accepted um yeah. from one way or another and I suppose then that touches on the new normal that's always what everyone's been talking about with the pandemic but with the new normal could that be say in the fluidity of sexuality do you feel mm. that that is only being experienced and discussed amongst the younger cohort or do you feel like that is beginning to move through the different ages of women who you see look i think i have a a cohort of patients that Mm. are really willing to talk about anything with me Mm -hmm. i think it's probably because the way that i present myself um, and in my consults create that safe environment for people to talk about anything yeah I think you can ask anyone anything if you ask it in the right way. Mm. So, I mean, the older, older cohort are still very awkward when talking about sexuality, even though it's equally as important. Actually, I just read something only recently that STIs are on the rise in the older generation. Oh, good on you. Um, Yeah, (laughs) I I think that's fantastic. But because they don't talk about it, then they don't know that those issues are still Mm. present for them. Mm-hmm. Um, but for all of the other age groups that I talk about, it's, it's something that's really a good open conversation. And what I really try to do in my consults is, or with anyone that really connects with me, is really try and normalise their experiences yeah. in, my, in, in my experience, not only as a doctor, but as a woman. Yeah. And as a child, the way that we present ourselves as women with our sexuality has really changed over the over the last couple of generations. Mm-hmm. And we are only just now starting to own our sexuality and be proud of that. Yeah. So in the past, I remember, you know, someone generations above me telling me that before my husband came home I just needed to make sure I put my lipstick on and um you know do my bit to sort of <laughs> how old do you think you were when you heard that yeah how old um I would have been less than 10 I would wow. have been primary school age mm. and I think that's not uncommon for us mm. as women to go into relationships marriage etc and sort of have this expectation that we are there to service service i mean that's and what that generation of that woman you mentioned they had books on yeah, it they had textbooks there. But it's still happening today anna mm. how many times you know with your friendship groups or social connections will people say oh, i guess i better put out today mm. or better do one for the week mm-hmm. and i guess coming back to your question challenging those concepts in terms of sexuality with my patients mm-hmm. really important 
so that we can continue to empower ourselves as women and respect ourselves Mm. and respect what we want, need and feel at any time in our lives. Yeah, I mean, because I suppose, you know, thinking about those sort of obligations that women Mm -hmm. feel throughout their long term relationships, that isn't really sexuality. I mean, I think that is servicing or Mm. meeting tradition or feeling like you're, you know, adhering to patriarchy and the party line, but really exploring someone's sexuality shouldn't have anything to do with um, service and feeling like you're obligated and you better take one for the week, you know. I think that really shows that that's an easier route to take but it is very difficult to step outside of that routine or that thing that you have been taught since you were 10 you said there yourself Um, and I certainly have felt those pressures throughout my childhood as well and picked up on those cues whether they were explicitly said to me or just through body language or through what I saw so yeah I think that is really important and you know how do women especially women who are of the older generation and have been in a long-term relationship for a long time how do they then step out of that and do you know do decide to explore their sexuality and you know what why should we be even saying to them you should or why don't you it's fun you know when they may just be completely happy and at peace at the stage they're at mm-hmm. just now absolutely and I think that brings me to something that happens really commonly mm. in in my consults uh, I have women who have just had children or you know are in that stage where their children are young at daycare or even at primary school and they come to me and they say look I just don't have a sex life my libido is shot and um, one of the first questions I ask is do you want to have sex Mm. and often it's well no I'm perfectly happy not having sex and the answer to that is then there's nothing wrong with you yeah but they often present with the pressure I guess once again of society forming this presentation that women are out there having sex all the time having multiple orgasms Mm. Um, even if they've had babies you should be doing it all the time and loving it Mm. but that's not that's not a reality Mm -hmm. if your libido is low and you're not having sex and it's concerning you you're missing it Mm -hmm. then that is something to investigate further and there are many many factors that can contribute to that including biological factors hormonal factors environmental factors and so forth Mm -hmm. but if it doesn't you then there's nothing wrong with you yeah and so it doesn't need to be investigated yeah absolutely and And that's just the women need to be empowered to say i don't want to have sex right now Mm -hmm. and that's that's okay Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely and um you know i think if partners have an issue with that it's all just about communication as well rather than communication is key Mm -hmm. yeah communication and education Mm -hmm. um and through doing that we will shift these you know pre-existing attitudes and that will then pass on to our children as well which will only make you know more powerful confident and happy women as they move forward yeah absolutely and and men as well and men as well yeah because it's all about expectations as well um and I think I like I I myself have one son one daughter so I'm always thinking about that and trying to make things equal but also think about them as adults you know because um expectations on them and expectations on what they expect from life will undoubtedly be completely different because I just cannot avoid the gender stereotyping which they receive already. Um, Mm -hmm. No, that's really interesting. And I feel like we've already gone off topic, which I love. It's always a good sign for a podcast. (laughs) Um, But we spoke there about the difference in groups that you speak to as women. So adolescent women, 
Mm. Bearing in mind that probably quite a lot of people, women who listen to this podcast are at an age where they do have young, but perhaps teenage daughters. So what about tackling those taboo issues then, like the pill for underagers or Mm. consent for girls, women in general, but also those who are under 16? You know, how are Mm. the women who I would say are Generation X how are they dealing with those pressures or those issues which are generally traditionally seen as taboo? Mm. Generation X is the mothers, right? I'm not very good with the yeah, generation. Yeah, so I th- Generation <laughs> X, I think, is 1965-ish to 1980. Um, yeah, so they're okay. generally, yeah, like in their 40s right now, 45-ish. Yeah, mm. yeah. So I do have those issues coming through my door and I love it when mum and daughter come together to talk about these things as they present but more often yeah and that that obviously shows that we've got a really open communication Mm. and I can educate them together about those issues which you've already touched on being the legalities around sex Mm. consent STIs and contraception Mm. I'd say they're they're the four sort of biggest ones Mm -hmm. with that age group that I like to really wrap my head around Mm -hmm. sometimes um you know that that communication or that relationship isn't quite there and that's okay as well it's not uncommon for adolescents not to choose their parents to talk to about having sex for the first time or having sex at all so long as they have their people that they can go to and I think I'm in a I'm very humbled to be in a position where I can be that person um and i guess the message to generation x is find someone find a gp that you feel confident in that you can speak to separately and say look i think my 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 daughter's gonna have sex or this and that Mm. um i trust you um and then leave it because the reality is anna when i have a teenager in my office by themselves if they show me that they are wise and competent Mm -hmm. then i do not need to talk to parents about prescribing Mm. perception yeah it's a board gillick's competence yeah um and i have to put their best interests at heart so sometimes prescribing the pill without parental consent is something that i have to do Mm -hmm. because if they don't they're going to have sex and they're going Mm -hmm. to get pregnant Mm -hmm. and that far outweighs any negative downside of being on the pill yeah so does that answer the question yeah I mean like it's so fascinating isn't it that everyone is at a different stage Mm -hmm. um capacity wise to understand those complexities I mean sometimes women and girls need to go on the pill for other reasons you know for instance I myself went on the pill when I was under 16 and that was because I had terrible really long and sore periods that really helped regulate Mm -hmm. that but at the same time, I know my mum, when she took me to the GP, she definitely had that. Now, this doesn't mean you can just go out and have lots of sex sort of thing. So there was those worries yeah. there as And well. I guess that, you know, we, you know, Generation X, the mums and the health professionals and the people that are, you know, those people for the adolescents have a responsibility to continue that conversation mm. about contraception, what it actually means. Mm. Um, and that's something that I will you know, if I put someone on the pill for bad skin, for example, yeah. the conversation will definitely come up. I'll say this doesn't yeah. mean that this is a ticket to go and have sex with yeah. everybody or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and even if it is prescribed for contraception, the conversation needs to come up. This is for contraception. It does not protect you against STIs. Yeah. It's not 100%. I still, you know, you still need to get STI checks. You still need yeah. to use condoms and encouraging that conversation with parents as well. Yeah. Um, and I can tell, fun. like, just by speaking to you, you as, and as you already said, you're someone who wants to just normalize that. So, you know, this is just a no brainer for you. This is what you discuss every day. You know, there's not that feeling of tensity a bit in the room when you're having that conversation because these just are these just should be the bread of butter of growing up and of anyone, women or men's, you know, health, sexual health is proper, you know, primary health. Yeah, yeah. And if a you know, if the if the kids come in with, with mum and we're having, you know, a big consult, I will bring up sex straight away mm. and if I can tell that well not straight away obviously I'll get <laughs> before they sit down. <laughs> you know I'm going to talk about your sexual history are you okay with mum in the room you know yeah. give them the opportunity to have that consult by themselves and I think you get better as a practitioner in figuring out whether a kid does need to be on their own and they don't know how to ask their parents to leave and then yeah. it's our responsibility to find a way you know and it's often you know, can you just go out and do that paperwork at the front desk or mm. just be really honest. I, I'm, I'm going to talk to Billy alone now. Mm -hmm. That's something that I do with all of my patients, give them the opportunity to develop the relationship with me. Yeah. Um, so would you mind just stepping out and then use that time to really nurture that relationship and yeah. let those adolescents yeah. know that what, you know, I'm their person, I'm there for them and I, I don't need to talk to their parents about anything and it's a safe space. Yeah. That's, that's really important for everyone to realize that we as health practitioners shouldn't be the baddies or people to be scared about they need to be able to walk into the room and say oh god i think i've got chlamydia mm. um and not hesitate about that mm. because it's a quick fix it's easy mm. you know it's, it's common yeah yeah and i think it's so great to empower young people to really step from that stage of being a child into being their own person and being in charge of their own health as well you know mm. usually we they will have a, a parent or a guardian next to them who is sort of in charge but for them to then realize that they are actually in this adult space when so often during adolescence you are in between the child and the adult who you're going to become I think that's so amazing that they can sit there and by themselves be like oh my goodness okay I'm yeah. in charge here and I actually yeah whatever this adult asks me like I'm in charge of and I'm in charge of my yeah. body and my health which is such a great um and hopefully like something that is a real point of adolescence that they'll remember and um, because it's really only going to continue from there unfortunately we're going to have to just continue making adult decisions for the rest of our lives <laughs> exactly and so why not why not give them that opportunity in a very safe environment mm. you know hold them as they as they become adults and show them how to make really mindful and well thought out safe decisions yeah. for themselves so that that then continues on yeah amazing well, look, I mean, you said yourself, you've done, I mean, I'm just quite fascinated by yourself personally. You've done your two degrees. So you did your registered nurse immunology degree as well when you were doing that. Presumably at the same time, you took undertook some sort of course to do your pediatric nursing as well. Is that right? Yeah. Working. Wasn't it? So, oh, yeah, it is a bit crazy. I've studied far <laughs> too much. Now you look back I, on um, it, you're like, how did I do that? Oh, it's so silly. So silly. I left, um, I left school with quite good marks and mm -hmm. um, I think I chose a course because of the marks not because I necessarily knew what I wanted to do 
yeah. I didn't know anything at, at school. I was really good at languages mm. and at history and at English, not science at yeah. all. Um, and I went to Sydney Uni and started off with liberal studies mm. and um, that included commerce and business stuff, which yeah. I failed terribly yeah. and realized very quickly that I didn't like. So I swapped that over to a science degree. Yeah. And um, then I, I don't know why, I just, I remember mum said to me one day, why don't you be a nurse? I was like, yeah, let's do that. <laughs> so I'd already done half of the science degree and I thought, yeah, well, I don't want to, I, I like to finish things off. I'm, I like to tick the box. So mm. there was a degree that was being offered, which was combined science and nursing. So I mm -hmm. picked up nursing and finished the science while I was studying for nursing, majoring in immunology. And um, after I finished nursing, I decided, well, I applied to do my undergraduate or new graduate, I think it's called, at yeah. the Sydney Kids Hospital in Randwick and was fortunate enough to get in. Um, and absolutely loved that experience. Mm. I spent a lot of time in the oncology ward and mm. that was a real eye-opener. Mm. Just watching these kids, oh, they're just so brave and mm. it's simple. You know, they just make life really simple. Mm -hmm. um, and then the other big portion that I spent was in ICU. And I think it was at that time when I was in ICU and it was quite complicated I guess from a nursing point of view you, you you've got more autonomy and you have to understand a lot more of the science and physiology yeah and I was finding that quite frustrating because I felt I didn't know enough or I didn't I wanted to know more I wanted to yeah. understand more and, and you obviously realized you had the capacity to do that as well well, I had lots of encouragement from my boyfriend, who's now my husband, mm -hmm. Nigel, um, and other people around me saying, you know, you could do medicine. Yeah. And I'd never considered it. And I thought, oh, well, I'll just throw my hat in the ring. I won't get in. And I did. Oh, amazing. And That's so important that you had those people there putting that thought yeah, in your mind that maybe. Definitely. I wouldn't have done it. I'm not, I, I can't. I never could do chemistry. I still can't. And that's mm. a big component of the exam to get mm. in. And I just. Um, I don't know how I did it, but I, I got in and you tried um, the hardest. I did. I did. <laughs> and I guess another, I always store when people say, why did you become a doctor after being a nurse? And one of the other biggest reasons that led me to go for it was watching the hierarchy in the hospitals and mm -hmm. watching how, you know, the, the medical, the people at the top of the medical chain would treat and sometimes bully the people at the bottom, including wow. nurses. Yeah. That was something that really irritated and, and frust or outraged me really, mm. because I think nurses were often and still probably are considered as not academic. Um, yeah. But I certainly knew that I was academic and um, had the brains, but I chose nursing as a vocation, I guess, if you like, because I really believe in caring for people mm. and I wanted to use medicine and become a doctor and really challenge those challenge those generational yeah. sort of the stereotypes yeah, yeah. Um, it's something that I'm really passionate about continuing mm. on with today so I guess they're the two biggest reasons what led me to medicine yeah, I mean, and then like moving to WA just to do your medical degree, that's a huge, like moving states is a huge thing anyway. How old were you at that stage? 
Um, I was 26 when I started yeah. medicine and I had done, you know, two degrees at Sydney Uni and was really ready to explore the world. Mm. Um, and at that stage, I, I guess I also considered doing midwifery. Mm -hmm. I really felt that I needed to do something a little bit different mm. and not believing that I'd get into medicine. I, I chose WA to do something different. I had a couple of friends over there and yeah. I'd been there before. Beautiful state. Um, and I moved over there with Nigel, but very soon after he got selected to play international rugby union in right. France. So he mm. left. And to be honest, Anna, it was a really hard time mm. in my life. I was very alone and isolated and on reflection, probably a little bit depressed. Yeah. Um, no money, no means to get back to my people. And a lot of study. And a lot of study, mm. yeah. So it was a hard time, mm. a hard time. And that's mm. five years across in WA, four, four years. I was in like, four years in WA and then moved back to Orange. Mm -hmm. At this stage, Nigel had come home mm -hmm. after going from France to Japan. And then we had the last year in Perth together. Mm -hmm. And um, then we decided to move to Orange. His family is from West Wyalong, which is a couple of hours west of Orange. Yeah. And I grew up in the Southern Highlands, which is about three hours from here. Mm. His family lived here. I did a, I actually did my mental health nursing placement here at Orange Bloomfield Mental Health Acute Facility. My goodness, that's and, um, such a, like all these yeah, different accolades such... you've got to your medical, medical um, experience. That's amazing. Yeah, I had such a cool experience in that ward. I still remember, God, those people were really confronting and unwell mm. um but that's why we chose orange the, they just built a brand new hospital here and mm. i got my internship here so we've decided to move yeah. and we honestly have not skipped a beat since we've come back to orange and we love it it's and great you've got for two our children now yep two yeah. children we started ivf almost immediately when we moved back to orange mm. we we always knew that we'd need to do ivf after right. nigel suffered from testicular cancer at the age of 21. Wow. So we, we met when we were 18 mm. and um, he had that bout with cancer at 21. So we always knew that there'd be some fertility issues. Yeah. And um, took us a couple of years to get Mila, mm -hmm. um, who's now eight, mm -hmm. not long to get Felix, who's mm -hmm. now six. Mm -hmm. um, and then we did try for a, for a third for the last four years, mm. but that actually resulted in another diagnosis of testicular cancer for Nigel my goodness and, yeah and a hysterectomy for me in April so we're done <laughs> absolutely infertile now but so um what about what a journey though that's just so yeah. tough even navigating through cancer at 21 for you both and through your relationship as well that you I presume are much stronger for it um as a couple but so intense for you to deal with up on top of all the things you were trying to achieve in your careers as well it's so to be commended yeah. for it's amazing yeah it was um it's been i, I turned 40 this year mm -hmm. anna and um you know you get all those comments about you know oh you're 40 over the hill how do you feel and to be honest i absolutely rejoiced at that birthday because even though my 30s has brought me mm -hmm. you know my career and my children it it brought me so much angst and so it was so hard and has left me with lingering depression, anxiety, yeah. and other and other issues that I still, 
you know, have to live with and work on every day. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, I just, when you say you're an open book, so I suppose yeah. that's perhaps why you do you are able to connect so much more with a lot of patients because you have mm-hmm. such a varied life experience as well that perhaps some of them are coming in presenting with similar issues. I mean, it's always great to know that the doctor knows how you're feeling from a personal point of view as well. I think gone are the days that doctors sit on a pedestal and tell you what to do. Mm. I think that we're in an extraordinary position to be able to offer education and guidance Mm. for people to empower themselves with the knowledge to make decisions about their health. And I think by showing that we are real people with real problems, um, it, it brings trust. You know, I, so many times when I'm talking to people about mental health and that is the biggest thing that I see and do. Um, and I always offer that I've been diagnosed with it. I, I'm on treatment for it. I have a psychologist. Mm. I'm not ashamed of it. I didn't choose it. Mm. And, um, I, I really do think that that helps people accept their diagnosis and in turn get better. Yeah. And again, I hate to use the term normalize it, but that is a really good, like, because I don't like the thing normal, you know, is what we talked about before, but normalizing, yeah. just talking about it or like making it acceptable. Humanizing. Humanizing. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. And, make, and making them feel accepted, you know, through your experience and your openness to talk about things this must be so important as well, especially with those taboo mental health issues. Yeah. And yeah, anything. Yeah. So the fertility issue, obviously, you have been through the mill with that, run through the mill with that with 20 cycles and then a hysterectomy mm-hmm. afterwards. Do you find that? I mean, I imagine that must be really useful for dealing with women who are, and men as well who are going through the same issues right now, because it's such a common thing to deal with. Uh, yeah, I, I, I really hope that I can offer my patients a different experience when they are faced with infertility, fertility mm. treatment, miscarriage and so forth, because I've been there and I've done it. And it's something that I really do take more. I, I do take extra time and care yeah. in those situations because I know that that is what's needed. Yeah. And um, I go above and beyond, for example, if someone has had a miscarriage to organize what needs to be organized even on my days off Mm. because it's extraordinarily it's horrible it's a horrible experience Mm -hmm. as is IVF as is infertility so and yes I'm very honest about my experience as well so that they feel that that empathy that true empathy you know I really know what it's like to stick yourself with needles every day I do know what those hormonal shifts are like I do know what the vaginal pessaries are like Mm. horrible messy Mm -hmm. um and I do know what it's like to continue to get your period every month month after year after year it's like it's when everyone around you breathes on each other and gets pregnant yeah um Mm. You say that women not only present to you with physical symptoms as part of their sexual health, um, Mm. you know, we were talking about the mundane issues, um, like sharing a bed, you mentioned, snoring, and we talked about before, lack of libido. Mm. Um, Do you feel like that is something that is brought up initially, or is that just like sort of seen as a subsidiary of other symptoms that are going on? Is it a conversation that's brought up at the end of your console when really it should be at the start? You know yep yep definitely all the important stuff comes at the very end you know you have to check check the mole and you know talk about the sniffly nose and yeah. the abdominal pain and then it's all oh, by the way yeah. you know 
the important stuff. Um, one of the biggest consult consults or presentations that we as GPs see is lethargy tiredness. Mm -hmm. And that is such a complex issue to discuss. And that's often where a lot of these underlying issues actually start to creep in mm -hmm. like libido, like um, insomnia, all mm. of those things. And if you really start to get to the nitty gritty of that, um, you can really start to help people with really simple, practical solutions. Yeah. You, you know, you mentioned the snoring and, and sleeping um, situations. When people are tired, you know, one of the first questions I ask is, well, where are you sleeping? Who are you sleeping with? And, and what's happening when you're mm. sleeping? Mm -hmm. More and more these days, people are taking their phones to bed, they're scrolling through blue light, mm. etc. That's just a no. Mm. More and more people have TVs in their bedroom, and mm. that's a no. Um, if you're sleeping with a snorer, this always astounds me. What does your partner do? Do you sleep with a partner? Oh, yes, they twitch their legs and they snore all the time. I'm mm. like, well, why are you sleeping with them? Mm. Because once again, it comes back to that generational norm. Well, you're married, so you have to sleep together. Yeah. And I I really, really push back on this. If you are sleeping with someone that keeps you awake, don't sleep with them. Yeah. At the very least, go and buy some earplugs, mm. please. <laughs> and vice versa, if you're a snorer, obviously we need to investigate that because there may be pathological reasons yeah. for happening and there can be treatment initiated, for example, for obstructive sleep apnea. Mm. Um, but yeah, there can be solutions for those things. Um, yeah, definitely. But yeah, definitely. it's such a societal expectation that you should mm. sleep in the same bed forevermore. Mm. And it's almost, I mean, I, I myself feel like it's a worry if we didn't, me and my husband didn't, you know, mm. it would be like, well, what's going to happen now? Or is this going to be forever? So Anna, I, I sleep most of the time in my own room because mm. I am such a poor sleeper. Mm -hmm. um, and I am a better person on my work days if I've slept in my own bed yeah. without interruption, although my little boy usually crawls in at some point, <laughs> which I love. Um, but for so long, I took sleeping tablets and I thought that there was something wrong with me because I couldn't sleep through. Mm. But, you know, my psychologist and my GP challenged that by saying, well, why don't you just remove yourself from everything and see how you go by yourself? Mm. And lo and behold, I don't take sleeping tablets and I'm, I actually can sleep. It's just that I'm a light sleeper and yeah. sleeping with somebody is not conducive to a good rest for me. Mm -hmm. So I, and I still... I agree, people do judge or kind of go, what? Mm. Are you serious? What's that like for your relationship? Yeah. It's better. Yeah. So much better. Well, I mean, obviously, it's that doesn't so mean that every night you've got to sleep separately either. Uh, yeah, I just, exactly. And we still have, you know, we still do share mm. a bed and mm -hmm. we still, we're, we're still intimate. Mm. Um, but it's, yeah, just it's a practical it's, thing. Well, yeah, yeah. And if you actually ask around, more and more people are doing it. And that's something that I challenge my patients with as well. And they're like, what? Yeah. I can do that? Yeah, it's I mean, well, first scary. of all, I mean, obviously it comes from a place of having a spare room <laughs> to start off with. Mm -hmm. But there are other things that you said, like, for instance, earphones or actual separate beds, even in the same room, I suppose, is an yeah. option as well. Yeah, that's so interesting that that's like um, becoming a thing <laughs> and that people are you think that, to it. You know, um, people that um, really have very varied um, sleep-wake cycles or work. Yeah, so there's some shifts. people that 
have to get up at four o'clock every morning and they wake their partner and they can't get back to sleep. Mm. And so they're tired and then they're angry and then they fight and then they don't have sex and then they've yeah. got a low libido. And, but wouldn't it just make more sense on those work days when, you know, Joe Bloggs is getting up at 4am, just don't share the bed. Yeah, and yeah. then, you know, Mrs. Bloggs can actually sleep till six, be yeah. more rested, be happier, you know, all of those things. It just... Yeah. I suppose it leaves the bed for actual intimacy and sex as well, like rather Correct. than just a cohabitation sort of space as well. I it's think... kind of weird, isn't it? Like you're asleep, so why do you need to yes. sleep? You're asleep. I mean, I know myself, like, there's no way I'm going to be spooning or snuggling all night long. I'm just like, oh, oh get off me. Like, I'm so hot. <laughs> I literally don't need you to touch me at the moment. Um, I think as well, like, for personally, looking back on a breastfeeding as well, when I was always... Um, breastfeeding in the middle of the night and my my babies would still be sleeping next to the bed like yeah mm-hmm. that I would always be trying to tiptoe and be really quiet so that my husband mm. could get a good night's sleep if he was working the next day so that's all a real thing as well but then he did ask some stages to move into our spare room and I was like oh no please don't move into the spare room because then I then I felt like I was doing it all by myself whereas if he was just yes. lying there sleeping I felt like there was some sort of like I don't know, we're like sharing the experience in some way and I was wouldn't feel too lonely doing it. So oh, that's interesting. I used to I was a bit the opposite. I yeah. used to um, look look across and and see Nigel sleeping and um I used to be like, Oh god damn you, you're sleeping. Yeah. How I'm can you be jealous. sleeping through yeah. this? Yeah. yeah, the jealousy. Yeah. Um, but I agree. I agree knowing that you know your mates there and and you've got your baby there and all you have to do is touch them if you need them to hold the baby while you mm. go to the toilet it is it's mm. it's lovely it's a, it's a beautiful beautiful journey yeah we've got all these things we have to go through <laughs> mm. um and lastly we talked about three sort of points that you wanted to cover um it throughout the course of this um podcast so i always sort of try and ask that to make sure that guests you know get what they want across so you said that women need to empower themselves around sexuality so I think we really talked about that at the start that women can really um accept themselves and accept how they're feeling with their relationship with their relationship with themselves as well do you, do you feel like mm-hmm. we really covered that do we get everything in that you wanted to oh it's such a big topic isn't mm. it I I could talk about it for a long for a long long time yeah. I I guess the biggest thing is in something that I see as a doctor and then I also experience as myself is that typical I've just had a baby and I've changed Mm. my sexuality has changed I I don't have a libido I don't want to have sex is that okay what's wrong with me Mm -hmm. and it's a really complex conversation and I think identity and body image is really caught up in that and I don't think we really consider that at all before you have a baby no or you just put it to the back of your mind correct but the minute you've had a baby your identity changes and you're a mother of that child Mm -hmm. and in some instances and for many years I feel many women actually lose their identity because they are the mother of the child and they're not Gabby anymore Mm. and then there's you know your body's changed um and you also don't you view it as a as a vessel of you know growing a child or a vessel to feed your child mm. boobs don't look like they did there's crack nipples there's tears mm. there's you know, bulges and all the rest of it sometimes it's really hard to connect the sexual self to that maternal self mm. 
and it, it just almost doesn't feel right yeah yeah while it's like your body's your child's and it's not there for sex it's there for for nurturing yeah. and providing life to your child it's like the madonna then, or the whore like you can't yeah absolutely it takes a while it takes a while mm. for that to come back i think and there's nothing wrong with that mm-hmm. and then we've also got to consider that many women have very traumatic experiences during birth yeah and can really can really negatively impact the way that they view themselves as a as a sexual person mm-hmm. and we don't it's one of those taboo to- topics again we don't talk about trauma and we don't learn about how these traumatic events can just linger 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 and then start to bubble over yeah. and you know that's something that's that's something that's true of all trauma and i know that you know you haven't mentioned it but you know that when I was a child, I, I experienced sexual abuse mm. and um, I thought I was okay with that for many, many years. And it was only recently when I decided to go to the police that that trauma has resurfaced. And it's yeah. really challenging in terms of connecting with my sexuality around that mm. when I'm still now sort of being re-traumatized in many ways. Yeah, so, I didn't think about yeah. that actually. Yeah, because you obviously had figured out a way to navigate between that trauma, your life, mm. and also your sexuality. Um, mm. And then going through it all again, and arguably worse this time because you're actually reporting to the police. Um, mm. Yeah, that I can see how that would 100% affect your sexuality as well, just trying to navigate and heal those wounds. Yeah, and, and I think many, many women have traumas that they harbour and have accepted as being normal or acceptable because we are women mm, but mm-hmm. it's, it's not the truth like we we don't have like we go back to that age-old promise that you apparently you know it was in fine print when you did your married vows that you have to put out once a week whatever it is yeah we don't have to do that mm. because that in a sense is traumatic mm. it's not respecting our bodies it's not respecting what we want and what we need all of these traumas do pop up eventually and we'll start to contribute to our the way we perceive ourselves as women and our body image and our happiness yeah how do you feel in yourself now that you've sort of gone through that reporting stage of your sexual abuse and now you're oh. feeling like you're coming out the other side oh i'm not coming out the other side at all and mm. it's um it's still very much in the early stages and it makes me feel for the first time in my life um outraged Mm. um and I feel very yeah just so so outraged and I I I feel angry that this happens so much but we don't feel we can talk about it because there's so much shame around it and it's a generational thing once again but that's why I'm very passionate about creating environments where anyone can talk about anything without feeling shame because mm-hmm. it's it's just so healing yeah that's incredible and you know well done to you on all fronts first of all for creating that sort of environment where people uh, especially women feel that they can come and open up to you but also just through your personal journey navigating through that and hopefully soon you will feel like you're coming out the other end sometimes i think it takes a bit of time on any sort of trauma to look back and then realize that you you did come out or you are coming out of that stages but when you're I can imagine when you're deep in it it's really difficult on a day-to-day basis yeah one of the most positive things that I've got out of this 
last couple of years, including that experience or, you know, going to the police, I guess being, having a voice around it um, is that I have created a voice mm. and I have really dug deep and got to know myself and accepted myself. And I am proud of that. Yeah. And I will continue to speak loud and clear about all of these topics that we've yeah. covered because none of them are taboo. They are all, what did we use the word? Um, you know, they're Humanizing. normal. Human. We all live on a spectrum. You know, you talk about sexuality. Mm. We used to talk about it in terms of homosexual or heterosexual. Mm. And that's just, it's just not the way it is. It's, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a spectrum. Yeah. And everyone lives on a spectrum, no matter what you're talking about, whether it be sexuality, gender, anything. Yeah. And we just need to be ex far more accepting far more open and kind yeah kind definitely um, just throw that. <laughs> <laughs> you also said you wanted to talk about it's okay to set boundaries I assume that means within your relationship is that perhaps what we were talking about with the bedroom or just not wanting to have sex at all and being accepting of that do you think that's how you would talk about boundaries oh look boundaries I think are so important in not just when I'm talking about sexuality or mm. relationships Mm -hmm. It's one of, as I said, you know, I've, I've gone through depression and anxiety um, and lots of, the, lots of the work that I've done with my psychologist and lots of the work that I've trained in myself mm -hmm. really focuses on figuring out what it is that you want and you need in mm -hmm. your life. That's the first step. And then figuring out how can you get that and then creating some really good communication with the people that need to know, these are my boundaries, yeah. this is what I want and this is how I'm going to get it. Mm. And being confident around that. And with that comes a better mental health space because yeah. you are advocating for yourself and you are getting what you need. And we can definitely use sleep as an example. Mm. You know, I need to sleep. When I sleep, I am a better mother. I am a better doctor. I am mm. a better wife. Why can't I sleep? Well, I can't sleep because I'm a light sleeper and I wake very easily. How can I get more sleep? Well, if I sleep by myself, you know, three nights a week, how am I going to get that, you know, and how am I going to communicate that um, so it's acceptable or yeah. doesn't cause any issues? And it's the same thing about I'm a bit of an introvert in life mm -hmm. and I really need to be at home a lot and be by myself a lot. And I've become very good at really sorting through the social, you know, invitations and saying yes to that, no to that, or yes, I'll go to that, but I need to be home at that time. Yeah. Or actually, no, you know, I'm not going to catch up for a coffee today because I want to sit at home and do sparkle art, which is <laughs> something that's quite cool. For example, today, you know, I have this podcast set up and I had a radio interview earlier this morning and then I go to work and instead of feeling guilty about shuffling the kids around. I was like, you know what, to get this day done the best I can do, I need to put the kids into vacation care. Mm -hmm. And that's that's okay. Yeah, It's so liberating to get to this stage in life where I figured this out and I really, you know, it's something that I really try and instill in all of my patients, but particularly those that are suffering from mental illness. Figure out what you need, figure out how you're going to get it, set your boundaries and then communicate them. Yeah, perfect. I mean, setting boundaries would be so good in terms of controlling your triggers as well, if you can, if you can mm. control them. So yeah, that's definitely such good advice. Yeah, like I closed my books recently mm. um, as a GP because mm. it was just getting way too hectic. Mm. 
Um, but I've also now, if people do come to me and ask me to be their GP, mm-hmm. I have to ask, you know, in terms, I've got some very heavy mental health patients on my corpse mm-hmm. in terms of their diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And I've ha- I have to say, look, I can't take on another, for example, eating disorder yeah. because it's very triggering and traumatic and it takes a lot. Like I have to give so much of myself if I yeah. keep, I take on more, A, I'm not doing them a service, but I'm doing myself a disservice Mm. and in turn my family a disservice. So, yeah, recognising what works, what doesn't, and then communicating that. Yeah, and I think that's so important for people to remember about the healthcare sector in general is that you care and you use your you know loving side which really should just be reserved for your personal life and for yourself Mm. but you really donate that piece of you which you don't have to do but because you care you know you give over something of yourself to your patients in the course of your treatment and that takes a lot out of you as well Um, and Mm. that isn't something that you can teach in medical school um, that's not something that bedside manner can even really help with. I think that's just that's something that's unique to yourself and must come across in droves with your patients. Obviously, you're very popular, and you know it's great to close your books as well because I suppose you can really nurture those those patients mm. that you have and really focus on them. I love my patients. It's mm-hmm. like going going to work and catching up with friends and family. Um, you can just pick up where you left off. You really get to know them, yeah. and it's such an honor. It's I just love it. Yeah, I mean that really goes into their third point that it's okay to talk about anything because chances are whatever you're experiencing, you are not alone, and that's what you just sort of touched on there. That you feel like they're almost like friends and family, and that you're all in it together, like navigating through their problems as well as you being open about your issues and ongoing struggles. Look, I I get I get lots of benefit from my consults for myself, and mm. I learn heaps from my patients, and I do consider it as. A guided journey I'm not there to sit there and prescribe the little pink pill and not tell them what it's about you know it's a it's an experience where I can offer what I know mm. and guide them through making those decisions themselves but conversely they offer me so much and I walk out of some consults and just go wow for example I've got a, um, a couple of transgender patients um, on my books and I'm yeah. just really loving that experience because I know nothing about it other than yeah. you know the textbook And I literally sit with them and say, I've not done this before. How do I do this? Mm -hmm. What are we going to call that? Because language is really important. Mm -hmm. How is that for you? Mm -hmm. Um, How can I do that better next time? And through that, they feel really comfortable because I'm not trying to be someone that I'm not. And I'm not trying to do something or pretend that I know what I'm doing. Yeah, or or tell them what they should be doing or who they are. And like, it's it's just such a, oh, I just love it. It it really lights me up when I see those patients because it's, I can tell that I'm hopefully making a difference, but they're making a difference to my life. Mm. And they're really, yeah, I just love it. Yeah, like a two-way learning. That's amazing. Yes. Oh, well, look, where can people find you? So I've got um, the Facebook at The Mindful Doctor. I must admit, I'm not great on the social media. I'm just starting to get up and running. Well, you certainly look like you are. I love your videos that you do every now and then. People (laughs) just talking about various issues or even just talking about your daily routine or whatever you're up to. It's really nice. Thank you. And I will try and once again, I've got to create more space, more boundaries so I can get more of that up. But people can find me um, at The Mindful Doctor 
yeah. on Facebook or and Instagram. Yeah, Instagram at the underscore mindful doctor. Is that right? And mm-hmm. um, yep. I had a look at your website, which is great. Doctor, it's dr gabriellestaniforth.com.au you can Correct. I saw there you can book in for consults I'm sure that maybe if you've closed your books that'll come and go intermittently or are you always just sort of trying to answer people's questions when they come in through that medium yeah yeah I'm I'm there and if people message me I I will I will message back mm-hmm. and obviously write generic answers in terms of not being able to when I say generic I mean I can't give any um, personal medical yeah. advice yeah but you know general advice at the moment it's been very much about COVID vaccines and mm. and trying to sort through all the confusion that's been happening recently yeah and I'm more than happy to try and try and help people understand things in a simple way yeah and you've been so good at doing that especially around the vaccination confusion your videos certainly are already doing that and well done for all the work that you're doing in the space and thank you so much for continuing on with the clinics even though they perhaps are really monotonous as well I oh, know you're very welcome it's, <laughs> it's it's been a pleasure and thank you so much for having me on today no it's great thanks for coming on take care wow what a woman and what a personal story she has had just at the age of 40. It's a huge tale of resilience and growth and success. I really feel like her story of a life as a female GP in 2021 is like a window into the psyche of women and girls in a new age and in an age where talking about sexuality and gender, sexual pleasure and pain for women are acceptable. But not only that, it's an age where there are medical professionals like Gabby who exist to encourage this new way of feeling, thinking, doing, with regards to our bodies, our confidence, our relationships and our health. And continuing with this will only have positive consequences for society and for women and girls navigating a vastly changing landscape in this new digital age. A massive thank you to Gabby and all other healthcare professionals right now who are working tirelessly to help vaccinate our population when this particular job wasn't what they signed up for. They studied for years at great expense to themselves to work upon and do something else, but they are rolling up their sleeves and getting on with it. And that is true grit. enjoyed this episode please follow Gabby on her socials the mindful doctor um, and you can get more positive but evidence-based information there on healthcare in Australia right now and send her a message too to connect thank you for listening to a woman charged podcast I have been your host Anna Walsh and until next time stay charged <laughs>